This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Matthew McGuire is the director of the theater program at Fordham University's Lincoln Center. He wrote and acted in the one-man show Wild Man. It's a string of stories pulled from McGuire's own life and told on stage. I'm driving through Mississippi, and I stop at a farm in Picayune because I see the farmer has horses. I ask him if I can pay for a ride. He saddles up a large black stallion. Off we go. Me and the horse. He knows immediately I'm a novice, but he lets me lead for a while. Then we take a fork down a path into the woods. I spoke with Matthew McGuire just a week after Wild Man finished its third run at the Here Arts Center in Manhattan. And I just learned uh, last night that I'll be doing it again in Los Angeles uh, the last week of May. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the idea is to just to keep it going because each time I do it again, it gets a little deeper in the bones. What, what do you mean by that? Well, this was a curious process because one would think that if one wrote the text, uh, you'd be immediately connected to it. And this and these are my own stories from my own life. So doubly, you would think that I would have the it in my bones. But I found in the first rehearsal process. I was having the same relation to a text that any actor would, that it, as if they weren't my words. And I didn't really feel that I fully understood what I was saying until the second run of the production in January. And now this time, it got deeper still. I had a teacher at Washington University, William Gass, wonderful novelist, philosopher, and he has a phrase I love, the world within the word. The imagery needs to be inhabited. In other words, when I tell you a story, I need to go back to that moment, say, on a runaway stallion, and I have to remember what it was like to have this stallion's mane thrashing me in the face. And the way that I say thrashing, the world of that instant should appear, should be evoked uh, just technically going back in and finding where are the strong verbs, where is the engine of, of how I tell the story, and why uh, Why does the way, if I do it this way, why does it mean this, and if I do it that way, why does it mean that, and, and just understanding how to make it my own as a performer took more time than I had realized. Kind of an interesting problem to have when you're the, the writer, to go to yourself and go, what's your motivation here? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> what do I really mean? And I would uh, come across moments when I said, I don't mean that. And so I, that's when I'd go back and rewrite. Sometimes in the rehearsal process, I would have to go back into my memory and say, that isn't exactly what happened, what did happen. And then I'd go back into rewriting. That could make rehearsing a little bit slow if you're always stopping to rewrite. The performance that you just saw it here had a brand new story in it. This story uh, from London. And we know that because you said so on stage. You said, I just wrote, I was rehearsing the lines for this part. I was writing the lines for this <laughs> That's part. That's right. So Broke I, the fourth wall. Ah, uh, well, yes, yeah. yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Uh, breaking the fourth wall is one of the f most frightening things about that performance because it happens immediately. As soon as there's just a little bit of house light com comes up, and as I begin to see who's in the house, then I have to start absorbing. I, 
I, the other night, for example, when you were there, I saw uh, an old teacher of mine who was in the back, and I saw neighbors of mine from Green Street I haven't seen in, in uh, 15 years. And they were there, and I could see that several of my students over there, one who I'd, who's graduated, been out a couple of years, Amelia Workman, and I just had a conversation with her about her work in uh, Young Jean Lee's Lear. And she had chided me for a brief response I'd given to her to her performance. I only wrote her an email with a one line talking about how you know, she was radiant in this role. But she wasn't satisfied. But I couldn't say anything to her about uh, how I felt about the play because I couldn't absorb this particular experimental production of Lear. It, it, it made no sense to me. I, I didn't like it. And so we had had this short exchange a couple days earlier. And then, so now she's in my audience. And this monologue that I'm just spinning by you at the moment is going through my head as I say, oh, there's Amelia. You see her? The lights are on her. Yeah. I, I have a direct personal relationship with everyone in the audience I can see. And so the dialogues that we've had over time, if I know the people, uh, I have to absorb as I'm telling my own stories. And that's, uh, that, that can be frightening if the person that I see is, un- is an unsettling presence or if I see that some- I'm losing somebody. You can see that on the face of somebody sitting in the audience? Oh, yes. I, you can definitely see if you're losing somebody. <laughs> yes, you can. How do you psych yourself up again when you see it? I, I would imagine that that would just sap you for energy. Well, uh, you can forgive them. <laughs> you could forget. Say if somebody starts to – you see their eyelids getting heavy. They start to doze. Well, you can actually focus your attention directly on them and they'll feel that energy and, and, and come alive. But in a sense, that's a bit of a threat. It can feel threatening to them. And, and the realization that there will be no unanimous response is important for a performer. I mean, some people came up to me and, uh, on, on the most uh, outrageous end of the spectrum. You know, people would say, oh, it's changed my life. And you take that with a grain of salt. The other end of the spectrum, uh, people completely misunderstood the piece and they thought that I was, you know, boasting that I was the wildest man in the world and clearly I was not and therefore this was just a fraud and and they thought it was, you know, a waste of their time. I had to leave the theater before seeing you kind of come out to your adoring fans. But hmm. and, and, and I I wondered I wondered what the people say who get it people who took away exactly what you wanted them to take away, how they explained that back to you? My favorite response was when a person would say, your play made me think about my own wildness, to ask myself, what, how could I be more wild in my own life or reflect back on the moments in my life when I have been wild and how, how can I keep that alive? So, in other words, my stories had sparked introspection in the audience member and that is a kind of loop, a feedback loop that that flows. That guy on the runaway stallion was an early appearance of the wild man. (laughs) Good evening. 
I'm the wild man. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, and my guest is Matthew McGuire, the author and actor of the one-man play Wild Man. Got this question, no one at me something fierce. What the hell is wildness? And how do I get me some more of it? What's not wild to you? What's not wild is if you've done something once and then you do it again and then you do it again because you know you can do it and then you do it again. I mean, if, if for example, you're a high jumper and you set the bar at four feet and you keep jumping over the bar at four feet, <laughs> you, never, you never raise the bar, that's not wild. That That becomes pathetic very quickly. If you decide that you understand your limits and then you start contracting inside those limits uh, and you won't you won't stretch them any longer that's not that's not wild that's slow death (laughs) when do you think you started to feel particularly passionate about the idea of wildness and maintaining it i mean is this a new thing have you kind of been obsessed with this idea for a long time when i first began doing theater was at washington university in st louis and i had some great friends and mentors, and the idea of an experimental artist was to ask the question, what comes next? As iconoclasts, you know, the history of theater is full of iconoclasts. Every single great movement has been led by people who are breaking the rules and recreating them. So that's what we set out to do, try to redefine what the theater would be, always pushing the envelope. Well, Arriving at Fordham College at Lincoln Center after a long career as an experimental artist, I also fell in love or again with uh, the history of the theater, uh, starting from the Greeks and through the Elizabethans and Kabuki theater and Chikomatsu and uh, linear narrative, very the power of storytelling. Instead of uh, always attempting to subvert story, I was falling in love again with the very thing I had rebelled against for a long time. And so uh, then I began to figure out if there was a way to merge the two, linear and nonlinear, conventional forms and experimental forms, what could, could happen next. But I often found myself defending the power of the traditional and began to grow increasingly wary that I might slowly become conservative. <laughs> and I realized I needed to put fresh energy into pushing the envelope. Okay, what's next? Well, well, what is wild when one is uh, in a responsible position, when one is running a program and 130 people are depending upon me, when one has a family and uh, it's not ethical to, you know, walk the tightrope down the median of a superhighway dead drunk. No, it's not. Which is a story that, <laughs> that that's a cameo right. <laughs> in your yeah. in your performance. A brief moment, yes, and a, a brief shining moment. <laughs> yeah, one of those hormonal uh, acting outs. Holly came from Miami, FLA. 
hitchhiked her way across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, "Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side." Said, "Hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side." Do you think that somebody else could do this performance? I do. That person would have to enter these experiences from a fictional, a fictional place, as if Wild Man uh, was a uh, a fictional character. I mean, people often do ask me,、uh, "Were those stories true?" And I, I say, asked you that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, yes, they're all true, but many people assume that it's fiction. And、uh, so, if it if it could be fiction, then、uh, yeah, then certainly yes. If it doesn't have to be the story of my life, then somebody could could do it. Is it、um, frustrating when somebody wants reassurance that it's all true? I take it as a compliment. It's it's a little bit humbling because I don't actually think that these these stories are are also. So terribly wild. I mean, many of them are finding a, a kernel of wildness within a circumstance which is entirely ordinary. And so, when somebody says to me that, "Oh, that must be fiction," I'm, I'm assuming that they think that these are, you know, gigantic wild events. But I'm not like Evil Knievel、uh, jumping over canyons or 17 buses on my motorcycle. There are some of these stories. Such as、uh, having a priest invite me to say mass with him and saying mass alongside of him and, and feeling included in a ritual that has in, in that particular practice it would have been sacrilege for me to touch the host and here I've been invited to touch the host so I'm I'm having an epiphany in which I'm feeling the highest I've ever been in my life so for me it's very ordinary. Or, or the again the other the other story which happens in church, serving mass and the priest farts. Father Wallace farts. <laughs> Completely ordinary. This is no big deal. This is and yet, for me, what I was trying to sculpt with that particular story is that for a, a young boy who feels uncontrollable laughter, you know what the French call fou rire, crazy laughter. That uncontrollable laughter is, I think, the core of wildness. And yet, the other side of me is the side who's devout and believes that if I laugh at the most sacred moment of the mass, I'll burn in hell for eternity. And so, absolute stark terror meets、uh, giddy hysteria, and and the conflict between the two is so extreme that I'm practically out of body. And and so,、uh, this is an example of. Showing the audience that perhaps there are wild moments in their own lives that come from ordinary circumstances, and that if they distill it, they'll perceive it. Great conversations can be wild. I mean, I, I you know, the the ecstasy of a great conversation you have with a close friend is when you start spinning off and different strands. Uh, then another strand, another digression, and then as the conversation progresses, you start weaving this, the strings together, and one, and that relates to this, and that, and this relates to that, and and pretty soon,、um, 
the two of you are feeling like you're having the experience of one mind. Uh, and that's, that's wild. But all you've done is you've communed with another human being. Well, I guess that's pretty wild. The last line of the piece is, and we strip our masks. What's wilder than that? The idea that, that we unmask ourselves, that we allow ourselves to be exposed, that we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to, to reveal our fears or our desires, our confusions, that that's, there's a wildness there. All you have to do is walk onto the subway and you see everybody totally encased in their New York City mask. And then when you get to meet them and they thaw, then you start to see their humanity open out. If everyone could completely drop their mask, then that would, that would be wild. But you don't have to go, you know, jump into the Grand Canyon to get to that degree of wildness. You want to retain a connection to what's useful, what's pragmatic, what's normal in the moment, what's helpful, the task, what are we, what are we doing here to make things better. But if you're also aware of the deep strangeness <laughs> of the moment at the same time, and you can keep those things in your mind at the same time, like the deep strangeness of somebody holding a metal object in front of your mouth. It's a microphone. It's not to... <laughs> It's a microphone. Just dispel that mystery right there. Well, I don't know that it's a microphone. <laughs> Maybe it's something else. <laughs> Sounds like I was holding like a machete up to your chin. <laughs> uh, great metal object. Radio. I love radio. It's Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. WFUV is kicking off its spring membership drive this week, and your financial contribution makes it possible for us to provide this programming like Fordham Conversations and to make it available as a free podcast. If you appreciate it, go to WFUV.org and click on Contribute Now. Thanks. My guest is Matthew McGuire, who wrote and starred in the one-man show Wild Man. It's a monologue of stories from a life in search of something wild. And the stories include sticking a snake's head in his mouth, locking braces with his first girlfriend, faking his way into a press conference at Ground Zero five days after 9-11, and getting an interview with New York's then-governor George Pataki. And what's more, the stories of Wild Man are the true experiences of Matthew McGuire's life. You said that one of the questions behind Wild Man was, um, what is wildness and how do I how do I get more of it? How do I get me some more of it, to quote, (laughs) literally, you know, to quote exactly. How do I get me some more of it? Is there a, are there steps to take? I think the pragmatic path to wildness is that learn, learn your weaknesses, learn what you're afraid of. And when you're clear about what really frightens you, then you walk in that direction. For example, this story that I tell in the in the piece, um, I'm afraid of heights, but I needed to convince an actor, Guy, to fly in upside down on a single cable from 70 feet above the stage, head down. And I had told the cast that I would never ask them to do anything I wouldn't do myself. When Guy refused to do this, I had no choice but to confront my fear. And I had to go up 70 feet above the stage and get strapped in a harness 
and go over the rail and be turned, flipped upside down so I could fly in. And about halfway in, I had a rush of euphoria that was unbelievable because I was doing it. I was overcoming a fear. And I don't think there's anything more potent emotionally than, than overcoming a fear. But it's, it's, it's not easy to actually glean and, and admit what your fears are. But if you're candid with yourself, then you... If you make the decision, I don't want to keep repeating myself. Where, where don't I know? And then, you know, go in that direction. Doesn't always pay well. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. There's that. <laughs> no. I've done cocaine, marijuana, TTI, THC, lysergic acid, diethylamide, amphetamines, methamphetamine, dexamine, tuinol, mandrax, qualums, librium, morphine, heroin, opium, hash and hash oil, psilocybin, mescaline, peyote, <laughs> nitrous oxide, and grain alcohol. <laughs> That's a clip of McGuire as the wild man reciting a list of the drugs he's done. It takes 17 seconds. The list includes an experimental drug designed to induce labor, by the way. But the most altered state, says the wild man, is performance. Are there bigger things that you learn by staging new runs of the same play? Hmm. And do those things flow into other parts of your life besides the performer, Matthew McGuire? Does that make sense? Sure. I could answer that a couple ways. One is uh, when Kristen Marting, who's the artistic director of Here Art Center, asked me last May if I'd be willing to take the slot in early June, I hadn't yet finished writing the play or started memorizing it. And I had never in my life memorized a 70-minute monologue in three weeks. So I asked her, could I think about it overnight? And that night I thought, well, it's called Wild Man. So how can I say no? Because it's too risky. And, and because of the nature of the piece, I had forced myself into exactly the right kind of corner I wanted to be forced into. I, was, I, I, I had to take a risk and say yes. And it, it completely overwhelmed my life for the next three weeks because I, I had to immerse myself completely. I would rehearse walking on the street. I would do the monologue in the grocery store. I'd sit on the subway and you know, do, do the monologue. Out loud? Or? Yeah, out loud. Got to do it out loud. You're I, that guy on I'm, the subway train. I'm, I'm that guy. Um, but as the piece progresses, the area that I think is most important is the idea of celebrating stripping my masks. Finding a, a relationship to the audience in which I'm not uh, going through any preconceived choreography. I'm not showing the audience, but I'm actually inhabiting this moment so completely that the audience and I reach a, a bond. That's true. That um, I haven't found that holy grail yet but I, each performance feels like it gets a little deeper. That relationship. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's an... Int- I, I think probably there's nothing wilder than intimacy. If the audience feels 
that you are actually talking to them and you're opening up your soul to them, then they will thaw and you become one. So in the best of possible worlds, it's like making love to the entire audience and not necessarily in the carnal sense, though there might be glimpses of that, but in in the sense that uh, two have become one. And that's enormously difficult to get to, and it takes great trust. It takes trust on the performer's part because, as I was saying earlier, you have to let go of the, the fears that there are some people out there that are gonna, not going to like this, and you have to abandon that fear. And, of course, it's, it's terrifying being out there. This, every moment is fraught with risk. You could forget what you're doing. You could... You could lose yourself. Maria Callas has this great quote, that a performer at every moment must be 50% completely in control and 50% out of control. And, and finding that great balance is the, is the key because when, you, when the performer feels like he or she is losing control, that's when the terror comes in because... If you lose control, you just stop. You don't know how to go forward. You don't. You just stop and weep or stop and laugh hysterically. I mean, the play could stop if you lose control. On the other hand, when you start to put too much control on the piece, then it's no longer organically happening, actually happening in the space, a living event with the audience, and they start to withdraw because you're not a live nerve. And you're not a naked impulse. You're, you're an illustration. So that tension is, that's the holy grail, to get to that place where half of you is completely out of control and half of you is in masterful control. And the, you're bringing the audience with you. Is doing this piece the closest you've come to finding that happy medium? Or have you found it in other performances in the past? I've found it many times in the past, but it fades and then resurges. And in these, I I believe they it happens in cycles. This particular piece is given me a great satisfaction. Whether it's a peak experience as yet to uh, maybe, maybe it's growing. I hope so. I hope it'll get there. For now, it's just getting deeper in the bones. Right, right. For now, it's it's getting it's getting deeper in the bones. Jerzy Krotowski, uh, one of the greats of the of the Polish theater, a follower of Stanislavski, but in a much more experimental vein, he describes what's most ideal for the actor is to get to the place where he is a, a naked impulse that there's no shadow. Eliot in the Wasteland talks about. Between the impulse and the action falls the shadow. Or, for example, you wake up in the morning and you have this brilliant insight and you get out of bed and you're going to execute a plan that will change the world. And then, you know, the phone rings or the coffee machine won't work and sooner or later, this is shadow. And so the same with an actor. An actor has an impulse, but getting that impulse to fire and execute instantly without anything, without any barrier... That's 
that's the ideal. So to get to a place in performance that's absolutely spontaneous but can carry with it every iota of experience earned from the weeks or months of rehearsal, that it's both the singer's been singing the song for decades and yet it's absolutely being sung for the first time right now. I mean, that to get both, that's uh, ideal. Matthew McGuire, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Mary. I'm sorry, son. All your mind is gone. Matthew McGuire is the director of the theater program at Fordham's Lincoln Center, but really, he is wild man. The fourth run of his one-man show will be at the end of May in the Los Angeles Theater Company space of Son of Semele Ensemble. Don't care now what nobody say. That's it for Fordham Conversations. You can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page, search WFUV's Fordham Conversations, or follow us on Twitter, where we're registered as FOCON, F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be your host next week. Stay tuned for Cityscape at 730. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson. Yeah.